Welcome back to the Padang Sessions. In this episode, art historian and professor emeritus John Clark compares the different ways that Radin Saleh and Juan Luna approached creating art in a colonial context through the study of two of their salon paintings, the arrest of Tipo Negoro and Spolarium. Um, this is meant to be a comparative uh, analysis of Juan Luna and Radin Saleh, and some of the points will become clearer when you've seen the excellent exhibition. And may I ask you to look very carefully when the exhibition has come out at the end of the exhibition, because one of the works which is too large to bring from the Philippines, Spoliarium, 1884, a very important turning point piece, is shown in an excellent video and high-density interactive a photograph at the very end outside the exhibition. So please take, leave time to look at that because it's, you get an idea of this picture, which uh, I think indeed I may have. The first illustration is on the right. I haven't done these to scale, but I've tried to give you an idea that these pictures are of different sizes. These are the two turning point works in the 19th century. One in Java in 1857 and one in Rome, later transported to Manila. Uh, the rocks are done in 1883-1884, as you can see there. When we come to compare Saleh and Luna, three features of their constituting context come into play. The different kinds of colonialism of the Dutch Indies and the Spanish Philippines. Their histories, which are of a particular kind, and the different relations of these colonial situations to metropolitan and local pictorial discourses. So there's three levels in which we're talking all the time, and obviously we can't all talk at them. Thank you very much, Eugene. They can't talk about it at the same time, but they, you have to remember that these other things are going on somewhere outside the particular picture you're looking at at any moment. Um, and also, we have to remember what we're not looking at. We unfortunately have no time to look at the prehistory. The work which arose in the uh, 1850s when Radnes and I got back to uh, Indian, uh, Dutch Indies and um, after uh, Luna's various successes in Europe from the 1880s does have precursors. But they, they require separate examination and they're a long topic and it's quite complicated. And we can see hints of them. For example, we think there's no painting in Java, but there is, because it's used in the early English illustrations, as you can see on the left. And there are also interactions with India. This painting, which is in the Rice Museum on the right, in the, sorry, in the middle, these four panels from a five-panel screen, I can take the other one, did exist in probably the 1830s and were taken to Europe. Uh, via Denmark, I believe. Um, so there are interactions with India because it is thought that Raffles took with him an Indian, an Anglo-Indian painter from New Delhi. And there are comparisons I can make with these pictures and Anglo-Indian paintings of the same period. So there is an Indian connection through the British, but it's buried or not very clear, but it's definitely there. And the last thing I want, prehistory I want to say is spoliarium 
the history painting set in Rome, but actually about the Philippines of 1884, uh, fictional plant placement. Remember that, these, that the picture on the right is a fiction. It is not an actual depiction of an event. And also an actual history painting of an actual event, the Arresta di Ponegaro on the left. These are not the first paintings of their kind. There are other paintings in the Philippines in particular. The depiction of the Basi revolt by an amateur painting, amateur, seems anyway, not actually trained painter, in the north of the Philippines, working in 1821 in a long series of paintings about an incident in 1807. A history painting, a painting about historical events. So history paintings do exist, but we don't know enough about them, and there are only a few exemplars which we have to write complex arguments about. Right. So I'm just saying this is what I'm not going to talk about, but at least I want to admit it exists and point to further studies, perhaps. To begin with, Dutch and Spanish colonialism were not the same. They had quite different systems of intervention and control and different historical longevities. The Dutch occupation of Java began by an intermittent series of local interventions by a trading company, VOC, which ended its life in 1799 with the Napoleonic Wars, and only became a colony of direct Netherlands control after the British withdrew from the temporary occupation after the wars in 1817. After 1870, Java especially was controlled as a cash crop producing agricultural zone, generating profits remitted to the Netherlands. The system of control was of a small number of Dutch civil servants to govern different provinces with mediation by the local aristocracies. Now, it's also a sort of given of Indonesian art history that there was no art training or no real experience of art practice before really before the late 19th century. Well, this isn't true either. Werner Krauss, friend of us all, I hope, has carefully researched what surprisingly widespread European art drawing instruction there was through the marine and military schools in the 18th century. Officers had to learn to draw battlefields, basically. Together with public drawing schools, whose intake was first limited to Europeans, Indo-Europeans, and some Chinese from the 1830s, but from the 18 from 1863, native students were also existed, who used manuals like that on the left, which is drawn by Rada and Saleh, but lithographed in Indonesia. Or by the 1880s, there are training schools, three training schools to teachers, who largely staffed by lower Indonesian aristocrats, who produce work like that on the right. Uh, so there is a, an interregnum between Rad and Saleh and the art schools which follow, or the art experiences which follow. But I just want to put that point on the table. We don't, we're not talking about a vacuum. We just don't quite know what's in the air, except for these examples. In the Philippines, paradoxically, a very small number of Spanish-speaking officials, less than 300 or something, somebody said, ruled over a relatively small and fragmented Philippine population divided into the rule of specific provinces by designated Catholic orders. Whilst the friars, who are the universal, it seems in the records anyway, the universal target of hatred in the late 19th century, were encouraged to learn local languages, the use of Spanish was actively discouraged by, the, by even elite Filipinos until the 1860s when the Jesuits returned. After a different reason, being 
banned from going to the Philippines. But the use of Chinese settlers, and this is the important mediating group, the use of Chinese settlers as craftsmen, particularly in Manila, their formation of professional guilds called gremios, because they had become Catholic, they had converted, formed professional guilds to make objects and paint certain kinds of subject matter. And the need to train an increasingly part of the mestizo population in pictorial schools meant that there was an identifiable stratum uh, of uh, painting and sculptural artisans in Manila by the 1780s, not the 19th century. There is actually quite a long lead up to the work of Damian Domingo, which you see illustrated here. This is a copy of his self-portrait, I think supposedly by his son. Um, I don't know what basis that's made, but that's what the, the connoisseurs say. Um, and these will be trained. These will be trained in the professional drawing academy, which Damien Domingo set up in 1821. So when the Spanish Madrid modelled model art school was set up in the 1850s, there is really nearly 70 or 80 years history of this kind of activity in the Philippines. Despite some similarities in the restricted access of the local population to the colonizers' language, with all the access to cultural forms, including art, this implies, the situation in the Philippines is radically different from Java in that the Spanish-derived... Excuse me. In that the Spanish-derived painting and sculptural practices, their codes of representation and dissemination, were largely in place by the early 1800s. The local Catholic Church provided regular patronage for religious images, increasing in the 19th century, and the local mestizo elite, Ilustrados, called for portraits. So we've got a lot of painting done in Manila between 1800 and 1850, before the formal European-style art school. Sale also did portraits. In particular, he did portraits of local Javanese, Chinese, Arabs, and Armenians, and you can see some upstairs. Uh, in, the, in the exhibition. He's also known for portraits of the Sultan, Sultan of Jogjakarta in 1867 and 1868, and you can see them in the Kraton in Yogyakarta. If you go there, I'm not going to illustrate them. But the difference between the Philippines and Indonesia is very important. There was no full-bone transfer of portraiture modes to Indonesia until the 1950s, until after the establishment of the art schools in Bandung and uh, Dr. Carter. So this is a different relationship to depicted persons. The 19th century art worlds, which Java and the Philippines were in contact with in Europe, do not really require broad description because Rada and Sala and Juan Luna were only working in restricted parts of those art worlds, but they were all working in different times. Rada and Sala in the 1830s and 1840s, Juan Luna in the 1870s, 1880s and the first part of the 1890s. Rada and Sala went to the, the Netherlands in 1829 and Juan Luna to Spain in 1877. So there's a kind of 40-year gap between them. Their education and art well conditions uh, were very different. Sala didn't train in an art school. He trained with artists. He went to studios to train, such as Cornelis Cruzeman, this Italian painting, of 1838, done in an Italian manner, uh, Crucible spent a lot of time in Rome. 
And another painter is, that he trained with after Krusterman in the early 1830s is Schelfhut, the painter on the left. And I would have used your uh, winter landscape, but I didn't realize it was here, uh, to compare it with. But I've, you compared it with a work which is also in your uh, exhibition, um, the um, Bakehouse in Maxen in Dresden in the 1840s. So that's the sort of situation that Rad and Saleh met. Schluna met a different situation because he'd been to a Spanish art school which he was actually thrown out of uh, in Manila and then he went for a year to the art school Escuela de Bellas Artes de San Fernando from 1878 to 1879 followed by uh, depending on how you calculate a five year period in Rome with the artist on the right um, simply called Alejo Ferra um, but Vera wasn't the first Spanish painter to go and work in Rome. He was preceded by Rosales, his work you can see on the left. Um, and there was an interesting essay in the catalogue, which I suppose everybody would want to buy, about Rosales and the Spanish Academy. Um, unfortunately, it misses a certain point, which I shall raise later, but it's still a very good essay. Um, meanwhile, as it were, back in back in um, Indonesia, or well, Dutch in East Indies, as it was, um, Saleh, as a child, he must have been 12 or 13, appears to have been taught nature drawing, that's Saleh's drawing on the right, by a visiting then Dutch, later Belgian uh, artist called Antoine Payen. And this is an oil sketch in the... Uh, Ethnology Museum in Leiden, I think it's called the Museum of World Civilizations. Anyway, um, and these, this painting, this is my photograph, these paintings on the left have not been exhibited, as far as I know, anywhere. But they're very, very important, because if you look at the date, it's roughly 1822 to 23 from a trip he made to investigate various uh, natural phenomena. And this is almost the same time as the beginning of plein air painting of oil sketches is beginning in, in uh, Europe via Constable in England. I'm not going to illustrate it. So the idea that something happens in the, in, in Hol in the Indies, which is uh, a transfer of something rather older, is in fact actually something new, which this artist is doing to the situation he's, he's encountering. And there's a very good book by, uh, a thesis I think it was by, my Odette on Payenne in French, which you can find. Whereas Luna knew Spanish painting early on because he attended the Drawing Academy in Manila, he was dismissed from this academy. I'm just going to come back to this picture. Dismissed from this academy because he fell out with the teacher of the academy, whose name was Saez on the left. And it's always been a bit of a problem for Europeans because they don't notice when Asian artists arrive in the European art world. They don't privilege them. The, uh, sorry. This is the turning point. This is a Chinese sculptor from a painting which indicates for 17... Sorry. For um, 1771... 
there was a Chinese artist being accepted as a co-equal of European academicians in London. The situation is slightly different for Rana and Saleh, uh, and we'll look at that in a moment. But it's quite possible that in 1834, when Saleh showed in Amsterdam, that he's the first Asian artist to exhibit at a European salon. It's of some importance, but has never been sufficiently stressed by the artist's historical literature. And the salon in Amsterdam had been set up by Louis Napoleon, uh, uh, the brother of Napoleon Bonaparte, in uh, 1808. There are also other kinds of links which we must keep in mind. One is that Rome, in the 1810s, 20s and 30s, was a very important site for European artists from Northern Europe to go and learn how to do academy painting. That's much more than Paris, in fact. Probably a bit, partly to do with the disturbances in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, but anyway, um, so painting you see on the right is a painting by our uh, and Seller's teacher, Kruzman. And um, it's uh, a kind of painting, a fashion for Raphaelist softness, also found in German painters, who sometimes are called the um, Dusseldorf School, sometimes the Nazarenes. And this is one of the leading exemplars on the left, Friedrich Oberbeck. You may not think this is important to, 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 acknowledge, to acknowledge, but in fact, Saleh, rather than Saleh, was very conscious of these differences in European painting schools. And in a letter to Bolt, his then patron, we'll see more of him in a moment, said in 1840, the German school, the Dusseldorf school, produces splendid compositions, but their colouring is hard and they do not control their mid-tones. I also dare to say that German painters are rather poets. The Dutch, in contrast, are less poetic but can handle colours better, and their paintings thereby appear more beautiful. Actually, Saleh is really aware of the kind of training he's receiving, and this is also true of Luna and his contemporaries when they go to, to Spain and Rome. They, they, they actually write about it. Um, and um, there seems to be a critical environment which they're beginning to understand even as they arrive in the studio. For example, of Salle's teacher, Cornelis Krusemann, it was noted by a Dutch critic that though his ideas of, this is the painter on the right here, though his ideas were formed upon the Italian masters of the Renaissance and upon Raphael in particular, he lacked the feeling and the technical knowledge necessary to emulate peculiar qualities of those masters. The general Dutch taste in the early 19th century was, all was towards a vague national sentiment and had neither the academic neoclassical tendency seen in France nor indeed the competitive desire to resist it. It's been discussed, on, I've seen the paper in detail, but the um, Dutch critics later thought that they were looking for a what they called a paternalistic feeling which obtained little resonance in paint on the canvas, a kind of softness, a kind of vague indeterminacy. Luna was, in a sense, a much clearer position and a greater self-confidence in his practice. In fact, many of the Philippine painters knew exactly what to expect when they arrived in Europe, I suspect, and knew exactly. Knowledge which is very clearly expressed in a letter from Luna's 
Peer, Hidalgo, um, in a letter of 1879, that's after, probably after uh, Luna had gone to Rome, but uh, anyway. And there's a description about the technical qualities of painting in the Academy de San Fernando uh, at that time. But the quotation, which is usually incomplete in English, citations hitherto, leaves out a very important last five lines, and I want to read them to you in, 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 in depth. I do not want to tell you about the Museo del Prado because I have no more time. He's writing to Rizal, by the way, in Berlin. I will only tell you that it contains the most valuable collection of paintings, more than 3,000, that is found in Europe. Spain, to him, is not an artistic pro uh, a distant province away from the metropolis. It's actually an important centre and collection in its own right. That's the first thing to establish. But secondly, much more important and easy to ignore, he says, one leaves that building, the Prado, with a headache and a despair in the soul, because one is convinced of the little he knows, that one is not even an atom compared with the colossi of art. This is the kind of attitude on artists coming to Europe which you don't find very often so clearly expressed. It's a great humility. And also it indicates the respect for technical achievement of European painting, which is matched in some cases, as with Luna, as we shall see, obviously, a tremendous desire to master, absorb, and counter the current manifestations of that discourse. Luna had himself made copies after Spanish paintings while a student. And unfortunately, it remains to be established what exactly the, the, order, the order for copies from, of our paintings from Spain is known but not exactly what had arrived in Manila from Madrid. We don't know exactly which paintings they were, but the painting on the left on the screen does exist. It's a copy after... Uh, it's very, anyway, you look at the Crowder catalogue, you could say probably it's the Velasquez, but anyway. Um, this painting was of some importance to Luna because you see it, lo and behold, at the right, at the back of this recently authenticated photograph, it's a, it's a supposition, but it seems fairly supportable, that Luna was very clear about European pictorial technique, the grandeur of its discourse, and he wanted to make sure that he could remember how he'd gone through the stages of mastering it, which is why he would take a painting that he'd copied in, in Manila in 1874-5 um, um, or something like that, to uh, with him all the time he was in Europe and then to Paris in 1890. This is an important linkage for him. Now let's turn to comparing their works more directly. That's the situation, the background situation. The question of expressive and stylistic diffidence can be followed up, which we noticed in Dutch painting of the early mid 19th century, by a close examination of some portraits done by Saleh and the direct pained expression of self exploration shown in the work of Luna. Talley did a group portrait of the family of the patron Bold in 1831-32, which you can see on the left and is in the exhibition. It's a very interesting picture. Uh, please look at their noses. They've all got the same highlight on all the noses. It's, uh, you know, there's some studio traits of the sincere student left on in. And it follows Kruseman's own mannerisms 
but it also follows the is also followed by other painters who position the Dutch family portrait for the colonial uh, colonists going to the Dutch Indies, as you can see on the right. This painting was actually painted in Amsterdam um, at the time Rod and Seller was back in Indonesia, but you see a Dutch planter, his wife, and then Indonesian, or you should say simply Javanese, servant. However, when you look at this picture, this pair of pictures by Chrysaman, of the same, the same patron, this is the patron uh, standing at the left at the back here, and as pointed out by uh, Clarissa, the, um, the wife of uh, Bode on the left of this picture, the family portrait, had died at the time this picture was made. That's of the child she's holding. Um, Crusoman did these portraits of Bode himself in 1826, uh, probably in Rome. And um, you look at the rounded Raphaelist facial features, the soft modulation of the tones around a red base hue, properly over a Venetian red ground, and the quick, uh, attractive simplicities of the persona shown as a kind of typification of his style. But only six years later, Saleh does not attempt formal and political self-conscious grandeur. He falls into a well-known genre of Dutch painting, which then extends itself, as it were, to his patron, Bold, as the governor-general of the East Indies, Dutch East Indies areas on the left. And this fits into a whole series of portraits of governor-generals, which uh, were taken back to Holland after 1949. And the uh, portrait on the right of Dendels is important because Dendels was actually um, Dutch, but he was a, ge a general in the service of the Napoleonic armies and then sent out to be the governor general of the Dutch Indies just before the British came. And this picture exists on the right, exists in various versions, including this version in the Universitas Belita Harapan in Jakarta, and you met the fate. It, this, the small copies of this, these works, you have to imagine that there's a grand portrait, which is the, which are these portraits, and then smaller informal quick oil sketches, which are done at the same time. And there was a set of these which le was left behind in Jakarta, um, and circulate. And this is one of them, the one on the left in this picture. Um, Henri Cartier-Bresson, the great French photographer, was there on a mission to Magnum at the time of the fall of the Dutch. They knew the Dutch were going to withdraw. And he recorded, um, fortunately for us, uh, the removal of the, the, the governor general portraits from, um, well, I presume this is Bogor, the Buitenzorg, uh, the governor's uh, residence outside Jakarta. Um, and the, these, these portraits... Um, also have a particular relation with Radenzella because Radenzella was the painter of many of them or their curator when he returned from Holland. He was actually appointed as a kind of curator-restorer of his pictures. And he'd done some restoration training in Holland. Luna also engaged in portraiture, and I'm only going to show you two, both of which are in the exhibition very nicely. Uh, one is of uh, Palaguer, the, the Catalan uh, entrepreneur, 
uh, entrepreneur and also a poet who was Minister of the Colonies. Uh, the Colonies were only Cuba and the Philippines at the time, I believe. They've uh, all been lost, um, which is shown on the left. And then a portrait of Ramon Blanco, which uh, there were two copies. One was destroyed during the war, and this one was taken back to Spain later, uh, taken back from Spain later. Um, so the portraiture, in a sense, is the anticipation of something which, another shift which takes place in Luna, which I'll just show you in some detail of, where the subject is not a person of power and authority, but actually the people, idealized working class, perhaps, as we see in the painting on the right, which only survives as a reproduction, which was lost during the Second World War, and also a painting in the exhibition, wonderfully, of anonymous heroes, uh, and there was also other portraits. He's a portrait of a working class uh, funeral in, in um, uh, the suburbs of Paris at the time. And this is bought by Balaguer or taken to, I don't know if he gave, gave it to Balaguer in compensation for other assistance, perhaps. So Luna, who started to do these pictures of the people, the ordinary people, also started to do pictures of the demi-monde, including women isolated in cafes who are usually courtesans or prostitutes. And uh, I long to see a fem proper feminist critique of this picture because three of the gentlemen of the Filipino Enlightenment, including Rizal, sitting at the back of the cafe looking at her. But we'll leave that for somebody else to do. In a letter from Luna to José Rizal, a novelist and later executed national hero, in 1891, Luna expresses how he has moved to more openly socialist sympathies in his work, including mentioning of various introductory texts on Marxism. Um, I would like to see it as a book which should highlight the miseries of contemporary societies, a kind of divi divine comedy, a Dante, who would walk us through the workshops where one can hardly breathe and where men, little kids and women, live in the most wretched conditions one could imagine. And then goes on in a long letter, which describes the things he's seen that cause him to change his view about the depressed classes. But portraits are important because they're a kind of sign, an indice uh, of uh, belonging. They show where people belong in society, and they very particularly show where the artist belongs in society. They define belonging, self-worth, the artist's intentions and linkages with the world. And interestingly, we have a self-portrait by Saleh from 1835, which is now in Matan, in Jakarta, and also one of Louis Meyer, a Dutch painter of landscapes known in Paris, the pose before the uncompleted painting on its easel, the accompanying dog being a little naughty, and indicates a common type of pictorial self-display at ease, at the artist at ease in the studio, with the eyes of both artists radiating professional calm and accomplishment, although clearly Rodin and Sellers much still to master, including figure composition and how to paint trouser creases which Maya does look a great deal better. The point is, uh, this is humorous, but he does it very well and enjoyably. The point is that Ryden Sully is at ease with his social station and conscious of the status he has in the world in which he moves. 
Indeed, portraits by others indicate this ease, and a playful wish to ironize about the positions he is put in by his hosts. From 1839, Radensala was in Saxony, particularly Dresden, and he allows himself to be seen by fellow artists as a Javanese prince on the right, or as a Berlin dandy on the left. These are portraits by other people of him, of course. And this was noted, and it's worth reading at length, because it's one of the first observations in a kind of intelligent nastiness and racist nastiness by the future wife, the wife of the future Viceroy of India. In the Grand Duke of Baden's room, I saw one of the works of the Java Prince Ali, who lives at Coburg like a tame monkey about the house. Lord Aberdeen was so taken aback the first day to see this black man in his Turkish dress, instead of handing us coffee, quietly take some to drink himself. When others are not in uniform, he sheds the turban, gold and silver, and becomes a regular German dandy, as on the left. With most Prussian manners, he has studied painting, uh, he studied painting with great care, and his picture of the Duke and Duchess of Coburg, Coburg and their real black servant and heaps of dead game is a good imitation of Landseer. Well, it's savor, worth savouring this statement. Anyway, but of course, this is not quite what Ryder and Sally was doing. In 1843, in a letter to Board, he mentions that he's frequenting the circle of a Mario Serra. And Mario Serra as a rich local landowner, was the centre of a very cultured group of people who circulated through Dresden and nearby Maxon, including Robert and Clara Schumann. Nobody has put Robert and Clara Schumann together with an early 19th century Indonesian oil painter. This has been, of course, done greatly in the debt of my colleague, Werner Kass. But anyway, I mean, this gives you an entirely different view of what a modern Asian artist is. He's not someone just imitating. He's enjoying, he's playing, he's the equal of these people. And there in Maxon, he also met the Danish sculptor Thorwaldsen, whose portrait Sally is reputed to have painted. Unfortunately, it doesn't survive or hasn't been found at any rate. Thorwaldsen was painted by Horace Vernet, and together with, as you can see on the left, the Thorwaldsen's cultural portrait of Vernet. Now, Vernet, as we'll see, is very important, and I'm not going to go through it, but you'll see lot, his, his imprint all over the exhibition in the animal and animal and hunting contact, conflict pictures. It was Vernet to whose studio Salé visited in 1845 after he moved to Paris. The linkages with Vernet's work are too numerous to mention, um, but they also are a kind of crossover to European literature because Vernet illustrated... Uh, an important story, an important poetic um, tale by Byron called Mazeppa, which is on the extreme left, and then incorporated it both in his figure drawings in the middle. Uh, that picture is reversed in the middle, by the way, but it's put there to show you how it goes together. And then the painting, which is in the exhibition called The Last Resort. So these pictures exist in a kind of autonomous space. And it exists in an artistic and highly cultural space where the Indonesian artist is not merely an imitator, is simply a, an, an actor of the same kinds of um, uh, narrative tropes, if you like. But portraiture is also important because it marks the domestic 
the land where we live rather than as a land where they put us. Lunar portrait, for Luna, portraiture is much more a means of domestic marking. This is portrait of his brother, Manuel, a musician with whom he went to Madrid. Madrid uh, Manuel was a violinist and returned early and unfortunately died of cholera in 1882. And then his self-portrait of 1879. But they relate to a world which we have to say is a Philippine overseas world, even by the 1870s, 1880s. Two Spanish painters at the back of the picture and four Filipinos at the front, including on the extreme right, Juan Luna. Um, he interrogated himself through the portrait of the artist as a, as a young student, as we see in this, and then now after his success uh, in uh, 1884 with this picture, um, which appeared in Illustration Artistique. I presume that's a photograph after a photograph, but um, that could be established. But certainly the picture on the right, which is in the exhibition, is a copy by one of his students, by his only student, I presume, of his self-portrait of... 1895. There's a difference in the world with which, in which the worlds in which, and the, re the relationship to those worlds of Saleh and Luna. If it is anything, it is that Luna surrounds himself with his Philippine family and friends in Paris, Rome, and Madrid. And also in the last years of his life, it would appear, and that's the time of this self-portrait on the right, was worked as a political agent on the cusp of the Philippines' struggle for independence in 1896 and its defeat in 1899. The revolutionary Philippines movement, the Capitonan, also split and some of its members assassinated Juan Luna's brother, the chemist and general secretary of war, <clears throat> Antonio Luna, eight months before Juan Luna himself died from a heart attack, said from a heart attack. Indeed, for Luna, the presumption of self must be seen as varied much more by historical change than Salad. The historical change only appears in the arrest of Diponegara, I think, for Salad. And there are many kinds of political events which Salad could have depicted, including the Java War in 1825 to 30, uh, the War of 1857, which he represented in 1857 later, he didn't represent the May, the 19th, May 1849 uprising in Dresden, in which Wagner was on the barricades and had to flee, uh, even though he was there. Nor did he ever picture the Farmers' Revolt in 1869, which he was accused of being involved in, but this was untrue. Saleh seems all the time to be seriously, quite seriously, uh, enamored by his European aristocratic and royal peers. Becoming a close personal friend of Ernst II of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, meeting Prince Albert, the husband of Queen Victoria, in Coburg in 1844 and Queen Victoria in 1845, as well as visiting Osborne, Isle of Wight in 1847, where he did a picture of the Austrian ambassador. Perhaps it was his familiar with and mostly acceptance by this milieu, this aristocratic milieu, cosmopolitan, multilingual, highly cultured, and so forth, and not like the racist comments of the future, um, uh, the wife of the future uh, Governor General of India, um, or Viceroy of India, big pardon. Um, so he, he's in a different kind of milieu which distanced him from Dutch controls, 
and allows him a kind of fragile mobility after he returns to Indonesia. We do not see the same positioning for Luna, who's either a competent, self-confident professional artist, or has, I've got 15 minutes left, I think, or, as I've mentioned, a split artist political agent in his last years. Very possibly because Luna was both a professional, a member of a nationalist movement, and had intellectual and artistic peers in Europe, we do not see his attempt to index his incorporation within, within the European elites of the time. This is perhaps due to his experience of the receipt of the gold medal at the Madrid in 1884 for Spoliario, which wasn't the highest prize, but was a very high prize. And compensation for this lack to be awarded the grand medal, uh, the grand prize, by the award for the contract, which Thor, sorry, I'm going to away, saw this huge, absolutely huge uh, historical painting produced for the Senate, the Spanish Senate, and indeed held in the main reception, uh, exhibited in the reception of the Senate, from where it was later moved to a corridor. There's a probably thereby hangs a tail, but I don't know what the tail is. But it doesn't seem very nice to move a big painting like that out of the space in which it was designed. And also, there is a, there's, all, there's a continuous series of paintings by Luna, which is of intimate portraits. Uh, one in the exhibition. Uh, some people think it's his wife. Some people don't think it's his wife. And um, um, also a fairly affectionate portrait of a model in Rome, one of some of his Roman scenes, you can see of 1883, before he took Spoliarium to Madrid. Um, I'm going to pass over the crown of fashion, but uh, uh, Luna actually shot dead his wife, his mother-in-law, and somebody else. Um, and uh, uh, he was detained for four months by the French authorities and then released for being allowed a crime of passion because his wife seems to have gone off with somebody else when she went for a tour. The whole thing is too contorted to believe and melodramatic in the extreme. However, the, the important point is this. The level of intimate involvement with the Filipinos overseas, some of whom were political exiles, may mean we do not see Luna's placing himself in terms of social intimacy with the French or Spanish elites in the 1880s and 1890s, as we do with Raden Saleh in the Netherlands, Dresden and Paris in the 1830s and 1840s. And I suspect the reason is linguistic. I don't know if, Sal if Luna mastered any other languages than Spanish slash Italian and a bit of French. I don't know how good his French was. I really don't know. But we know that Saleh was very fluent in four or more European languages. Could write and read them and speak them quite well when he's used to it. So these are, these are different relationships to European culture. And of course, if you were living in Dresden and seeing all those writers and sculptors and musicians coming through the social circle of your principal patron, you'd think you identified with that culture. Much more cosmopolitan. Even, so we mustn't, we mustn't think that because Luna was in Europe, he was being cosmopolitan. He's been a great professional painter, making success out of being a Philippine artist in Europe, but he wasn't necessarily joining the classes of the people he was mixing with, even though he got on well with the Spanish Queen and, and other things of that kind. Um, 
And it's interesting that statements of a perception of his own identity do not seem to survive for Luna, but they do for Salet, who indeed wrote a largely now lost autobiography from 1849, parts of which survived the wartime chaos in Maxon in 1945. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the parts which survive are very indicative. I'm just going to read one extract uh, for uh, um, Salet, and I think we better just one to so you can see it against the picture on the right, which he did when he went back to the uh, to the Dutch Indies. Don't forget. But he said of his time in Germany, and particularly in Saxony, which is a very cosmopolitan place in the and uh, it's, it's, it's Germany before the Prussian unification. It's after this, the Stolverein, the, the customs union of Germany, which is 1844-47, and the Prussian suppression of uh, not only of France, but also of all regional kingdoms in 1870. So it's a different world that was, lived, was being German cosmopolitanism in the 1830s was different to later state-based cosmopolitanism. But anyway, he says in 1849, two sides opposite to each other, but yet both light and friendly, put their magic spell over my soul. There was the paradise of my childhood in the bright sunshine, washed by the Indian Ocean. This is written in German, by the way. Where my beloved one lives, and where the ashes of my ancestors rest. Here, Europe's luckiest countries, where the arts, sciences, and educational values shine like diamond jewelry, to where the yearning of my youth finally brought me where I was lucky enough to find friends within the noblest circles, friends who replaced father, mother, brothers and sisters. Between these two worlds, my heart is split and I feel urged to offer both sides my loving thanks. Clearly, this is somebody who knows what cosmos he knows what multiple affiliation is. Saleh clearly regards his patrons as his close social associates, if not also his friends, as we see. And this, this affection seems to be reciprocated by some of them, particularly Ernst Duke Ernst II of Saxe-Goburg and Gotha. Again, just to remind you, the brother of Prince Albert, a husband of Queen Victoria. And Saleh, regarded as a personage worthy of note in all major cities that he lived. There are many historic paintings. There's only the Bassi Revolt of the 1820s and the rest of Dipo Nagara in 1857, which is on the right. This was the result of the Java War from 1825 to 30, and the prince was captured, the prince Dipo Nagara was captured by General de Koch, Baron de Koch, and taken away and forcibly exiled, and died in exile. Uh, in this, was of, the Dutch obviously realised it was an important historical turning point in their control, control of Java and was depicted, first of all, by um, a Dutch history painter called Nicolas Pienemann in uh, 1830-35, quite close to the event, so obviously a kind of history record. And then by Raden Salah after his return to Java in 1857, and he travelled around making sketches, um, uh, preparing for this painting on the right considerably. And you can see the preparatory drawing upstairs um, borrowed from Rotterdam, was it? Um, um, uh, upstairs in the exhibition. So note the, uh, the preparatory drawing because it's 
different to the painting you're seeing on the right. The contrast between the two works lies in the hierarchical placement of the main figures, the capteur, the General de Koch, being shown by Piemann, painting higher at the mid-right than the prisoner, Prince de Bonagoro, at centre and mid-left. Whereas in Sallet's painting, de Koch and de Bonagoro are almost at the same level, de Koch at centre lie right and with a facially distorted figure has a physical inelegance considered devilish and inferior, and it's the inferior side, the left side, obviously, for the prince uh, by the Javanese, and none of the Dutch had noticed this. It's of the same meaning as Dexter, it's the evil side. The composition with this centrally lit area for the main historical events also resembles, there are the two of them looking at each other in Sally's painting. Uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me. The composition has a centrally lit area for the main historical events, and it resembles this picture on the right by Louis Gallet, the application of Charles V of 1841, which was toured to Germany and led to a revival of Nash's painting there. In fact, Sarah's patron, Sarah, S-L-S-Sarah, I suppose, um, was the person who organized the appearance of this picture in Germany. And Saleh has very obviously helped him. So you could see compositional similarities immediately between these two pictures. And of course, the meaning was also similar in that Charles V split his kingdom. So the painting serves as an allegory in the middle of the 19th century for the Belgian insurrection against the Netherlands in 1830. It's taking an early historical event as an allegorical indicator of what's happening now. And um, the, re the result of the, Bur the Belgian splitting of his kingdom by Charles V was, in a sense, the splitting of Belgium from the, the Netherlands in 1839, and thus it means that although Salah didn't do a lot of it, didn't do any other history painting as far as we know, he was intimately aware of the consequences of national conflicts which split the Netherlands. He knew what was going on. And this is to some extent also shown in the preparatory sketch, which is upstairs, or downstairs, um, which was originally intended, as you can see, to include a portico but the exaggeration of de Kock's head appears in the painting and not the original drawing, and the portico has been lost. So it's reasonable to suppose that this is a deliberate intention on the part of the artist when he comes to paint the picture. Um, but the, the inference, I think, is, is compelling. Saleh often used allegorical references in his later work, and one is in the exhibition, an important picture, a uh, landscape with tigers surprised by the sounds of a travelling group or short title, Lying in Wait, uh, of, 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 of 1849, where a pair of tigers ambushes a wandering, is in, ambush, is in ambush view, a wandering family, somewhat on the lines of Joseph Mary in exile with the Christ child beyond, which is an, in the temple of Borobdor, above which is the setting sun. Werner Krauss has made some very interesting interpretations of this picture, and I will just simply translate three lines which show how what looks like a kind of another one of those animalier pictures he did actually is allegorical. Over Barobidur stands the pure light, the sun of non-existence, the goal of the spiritual journey. If we accept this interpretation, then the picture illustrates the Javanese philosophy of spiritual transformation as the existential task 
of human beings. We're in a much more literary allegory to go to the next painting, which is the one you'll have to look at in the photograph at the end of the exhibition, uh, which is Juan Luna's Poliario. There it is as a on total view, and there it is as exhibited in Madrid in 1884 when it won the prize. It is a historically reconceived Rome with the fallen gladiators' bodies, which are stripped and disposed of. And it's based on a particular literary representation. In fact, two literary representations, as Clarissa Cicchiami has pointed out privately. There's actually an Italian, both on the French and Italian novels, which this draws on. The broken bodies and their posthumous material treatment now clearly appears a metaphor for the, for the subjection of the Philippines by Spain. And there's little doubt this is what the expatriate Philippine community thought in Madrid. And there are, there are texts about that, but I won't go into it. In fact, Luna's painting falls into a grand series, of, but this is more complicated even than that, because Luna's painting falls into a grand series of paintings, such as the painting by Pradilla on the right, of 1882, later, I, uh, uh, but um, in the sense that it's done in Madrid, although it's about contemporary with the Spoliario. A grand series of paintings of conquests in Algeria and Spanish, and Spanish conquests of Morocco by contemporary painters. And this is rooted in French painting for the Salon, Spanish history painting, the internal reconquest of Spain, which is what's shown in La Rendition de Granada there. Um, and um, you just have to remember that these large panoramas were a very important topic in patronage structures, but also in exhibitions in the 19th century. There he, on the top is Vernet, the artist he knew very well, probably from 1845, if not earlier in Dresden. It's almost certainly he knew him in Dresden, but I don't think there's a record of that. Who did these great big, gigantic pictures of French military conquests. Um, and another painter who's fallen out of history because he died young in 1874, but we'll come back to him because I think he's important in this particular case of Luna, Luna's late styles. And Fortini was a Roman painter. And you can see one of his Grand War paintings on the wall behind his, in his studio on the right. Um, Luna's painting of, links up between history painting and colonial painting, but also with the radicalized views of the nation as victim, as most obviously in the work of Goya, which is to be seen in the Prado with the common sense of a singly dramatic sacrificial figure in a strongly lit sector of the painting. Look at the, the lighting is somehow very similar in these pictures and no one seems to have pointed out or taken that for granted. Um, and also in this donor comparing Goya with Luna, I don't see it in any of the literature very de in any detail anyway, is this uh, famous painting of the forge, which is in the Frick collection, which I've since established, it's very likely Luna could not have seen. But certainly you get the feeling of the same kind of treatment of light and environment of effort and, and so forth. And we know that Luna spent some time in the forge uh, in a steel foundry in Bilbao after he was released from 
um, prison in France in the 1890s. Here we're linking up with a, quite a different discourse which moves in a direction which some of, some of us are familiar with. But Fortuny did these large internal uh, pictures as well as external history paintings. And these seem to be some kind of dialogue, in some kind of dialogue with Luna's representation of large historical events. But more importantly, and I don't have a slide of it here, but you'll see it in the exhibition, it's also linked up with what could be what is sometimes described as scintillation. Putting extreme dots of or areas of extreme tonality on the surface of the painting, so the painting surface seems to flutter or flicker or be alive with light, uh, as in the woman's gown and also on the balcony in this picture by Athena of 1884. I did so much work between 1883 and 1886, it's unbelievable, but still. Now, I just want to point to this, but it's very important. Um, because um, these artists are really not really, really studied, but there are connections. And the connections go like this. Ilya Repin of the Wanderer School in Russia was in Europe in 1874-5, visited the late Fortuny's studio, saw the retrospective of Fortuny in Paris in 1876, if I remember rightly, I'm just remembering at the moment. And Repin founded a whole school of representations of pictures of the crowd, historical events marked by figures together. Now, it wouldn't at all surprise me that uh, Luna had known about this, but certainly other kinds of pictures of the same kind were found in Paris at the same time, and also became part of the, if you like, the um, uh, commonweal of European history painting in the late 19th century. And of course, ended up in China because Repin's student was Brodsky, Brodsky's student was Maximov, and Maximov taught in Beijing from 50, uh, 50, 55 to 57. So th there are linkages to our area. If you don't see these history paintings in Beijing, you think, oh, I've seen that somewhere before, because it's not been studied, we don't really know. And also you see the same kinds of effects on the surface. And you'll see one of the paintings by Luna in the exhibition flower cellars, I think it is, where this scintillation of the surface takes place. Now, because we absorb Franco-centric art history, which goes salon, late salon, corrupt salon, impressionism, post-impressionism, fauvism, cubism, and we ignore all the other things which are happening at the same time in salon art in the 19th century. Let me see if I can reach a conclusion to give you some time to ask questions. How might an idea of Asian modernity take shape out of our understanding of artists who spent so much of their working lives in Europe or appropriating European painting? In many ways, this question poses the Asian modernity in Euro-American term. Modernity does not begin with the modernists recognizable in Euro-America. Certainly in Asia, it doesn't. 
The modern is a relation between a new lived experience and the forms chosen or developed to represent and express this. Nothing is more intellectually anti-historical to think that the modern has something to do with the relegation of material discourse of the artwork in favour of its conceptualization. This is the peril of contemporary art theory. Asian modern artworks are often grounded in the historical fact of the subject. Recognition is an essential element in their representation. That this is a local subject, however much it fits into the selections of existing pictorial discourse, render the work other than the practice and codes from which it is derived. That's a posh way of saying that otherness for a set of practitioners and a specific audience, usually at the local elite in the first instance, is because of its shifts between discourses otherwise culturally affiliated. And it's particularly susceptible, as we can see in the work of Luna, as we can see in the work of Saleh, as we can see in the work of almost any other Asian painter in the 19th century, it's susceptible to double meanings. Interpretations which the artist is putting into the work and which he knows are being misread or taken in a different direction by the audience. And these interpretations are cross-purposed between the colonial painter and the colonising culture. The colonising culture is almost entirely unable to see this happening in front of it. Derivation is not straightforward, and its exception tends to deploy allegory as its desire and a device for shifting between multiple meanings. If the artist does not engage in the literal deployment of allegory, he or she often stands above the kind, and there are some she's, often stands above the kind of colonial interpretive structures which authorize the work for the colonialists. The artist therefore tends towards a highly mobile and ironic position. Of course, such irony most eloquently displayed by Saleh, sending his picture, which I'm not going to illustrate again, of the arrest of de Bonagora to the King of Holland, the representation of a famous colonial imposition, which is structured to have quite a different interpretation to the previous work by the Dutch painter Pienemann. And let's just think, ah, Saleh's standing outside and examining the colonial exchange. Whereas another position, is, of, to the, is that of the, uh, of, to the aristocratic ironist, which is what Sally is, is of Luna, who's an independent, as you can see, resistant, and a fighter professionally bound up with higher national goals for which tragic sacrifices were actually made. And let's not forget that. So, to finish... And here we have to think, what do these images of these two artists really tell us? How such artists might be differ differentiated from those who did not go to Europe remains an issue, and I'm not going to go into it, it's too complicated. And we also have to accept that in the Philippines, the US conquest mark, perhaps marks a different case. It's a different kind of subordination, a different kind of colonial rule, because the USA brought a generalized educational system and domestic art, new acquired, uh, newly acquired opportunities for professional artistic practice, which is very, very clear in the 1920s and 30s in the Philippines. But among those who did go abroad, and here we see the two leading 19th century exemplars, among many others we could name from other parts of Asia, but among those who did go abroad to enter the visual cultures of the colonial master, Sally and Luna, rather than being seen as opposed types, should rather indicate two alternative strategies for adjusting to the same set of problems posed by the visual discourses of the colonial masters. One, Saleh, was aristocratic and ironic. One, Luna, was professional, but ultimately tragic. 
how far to set to appropriate colonial discourses and how much. And under the 19th century conditions of high European imperialism, how far a kind of cultural authenticity could be provided, which is not entirely in the sway of the other. Thank you. Oh, thank you for your lecture. Uh, I was just wondering, um, for uh, and encountering uh, their work for the first time, if you can comment, um, were their uh, impacts, what, were they, they impacted by other art historical movements of the uh, 19th century in Europe, such as uh, you know realism or romanticism, neoclassicism? as well as if they were specific artists, they looked to, you know, thinking of, you know, Manet, Corbet, you know, Delacroix, uh, Jacques-Louis David, uh, if you can comment on that, that'd be great. In that, the painting discourses which they encountered provided artists of that kind. The question is interesting. In that, that question is based on a European art historical trajectory. It's not interesting. You're asking a question about European art history. Where did they fit into the grand pattern? The point about this is the pattern is something somewhere else and we're not looking for it properly. It's like a detective not following the clues, following the obvious, oh, oh she, she crashed her husband's car, she must have an insurance policy. I mean, you know, all right. But um, just, I just... I don't... I don't I've, I've stopped thinking that way some time ago, as you can probably gather, so... Um, you better ask a European art historian that question. I can't answer it. It's a question I don't. I mean, you know, if you if you if you base everything on European nineteenth-century art history, you're asking a European set of questions about European art and how they fitted into a European's perspective. The point is that even though these artists are working with materials and art discourses, which are not. Uh, their own, because it's forced on them by the historical situation they're faced with, they're not doing that with it. And whatever that is, whether that is the transition from the academy to, you know, 1850s salon art or whatever it is, it's just, they're not doing that. I mean, we have to realise that art is always trapped or placed within systems of interpretation which are based on our historical knowledge. If our historical knowledge is only of a limited kind, if it doesn't include the paintings I showed you at the very beginning, then you're going to ask questions which just simply reproduce the historical knowledge you've already got. And the point about this is trying to find what isn't there. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, I may be wrong, I might be misguided, and so on and so forth, but there we are. It's, that's not all. It's the other thing that I've tried to do. I mean, you could look at Ryland Sally's Javanese cap and his, you know, medals from the Dutch king and pseudo-uniform which he had designed for him because there wasn't an appropriate uniform which you could get. And you could think, oh, this is just, you know, colonial assimilation. Couldn't you? And then you could think, oh, but he knows what's going on. He's, he's within it. And then when he's within it, there's room for his inten intention for a different purpose, uh, purposing, different articulation of subjectivity within the constraints of the world he's finding himself in. That's really all I'm looking at. Yeah. Anyway, why should we always go to Paris or New York? Haven't you been there often enough? 
Your criticism could be, and validly, that I presume too much knowledge of European art discourses to think to worry too much about the integration of such colonial artists within it. That could be the genuine criticism, and I would probably say, yes, only as far as it goes, because you leave out the subjectivities of the artists and the probable historical positioning, and it's certainly true between these two. And that's why I put them together, which is not in the exhibition, by the way. The exhibition is about parallel careers, not intersecting careers. Uh, thank you for the, the inspiring lecture. Um, to follow, maybe uh, to follow this question, um, if he, uh, if these artists uh, offer these multiple interpretations, uh, and uh, uh, could you tell a little bit more about the audience, the people who saw these works? So, if um, uh, these artists used a, a Western language, uh, an academic language, but then did something else with it, uh, who was it that could read that second message? So, where did these people show their works? Who were these artists and who could actually read apart from themselves, uh, that message. Could you tell a little bit more about that? Um, well, it's very interesting with the case of Salah. I, I don't know exactly what Spanish colonialist attitude to Luna was. But it's very interesting in the case of Salah that he spends a lot of time looking at colonial rulers and being patronized by them which tends to indicate that he thought they would understand even a third, and he tried to put his meaning in an accept, a form which they would accept. Um, but Salah is certain, they're both of them exhibited in Salon, so they're, you know, and, uh, and Luna exhibited in 1847, and an illustration upstairs from L'Illustration, um, of a painting which was bought by Louis Philippe. So it's always it's always a varied, always a multiple-sided, but often just simply double-sided set of relationships. Something which satisfies the colonial metropolitan discourse, and something which satisfies them, and possibly a limited number of other aristocrats or other privileged professionals from their own culture. And certainly, in the case of Luna, there are lots of those artists who would understand what he was doing with European art. Um, who have another interpretation. I don't know that we should think that uh, people who manage to exhibit in European salons are, are unappreciated by European salon audiences, which is what happened with, certainly with, with Sally, was certainly appreciated by, and there are records of reasonably, you know, supported critiques of shit by French artists. I just, the, the, the question really doesn't arise. I mean, for God's sake, that Dozon, the Malay, Malay linguist, took Charles Baudelaire to Salé's studio in Paris. Which European art historians noticed that? Even though, the, if you like, the model of Salon art that Salé followed was Vernet, 
these animalier pictures, you know, the fighting tigers, whatever and whatever. And Horace Vernet was tillered in his critiques of the Salon by Baudelaire himself. So, I mean, people move in a space which is multivalent, and we tend to singularize these, these values because of, where, because of a historical perspective which tends to privilege where we stand or privilege the, the artworks of a particular continuum of a particular culture. Uh, maybe I'm trying to hear something which isn't there. Okay. I mean, clearly the Javanese elite liked having their portraits painted. You only got to go to the, to the Craton and Jogjakarta to see these. They're on the walls. And they're on the walls of photographs taken in the Craton from, some correct me, but 1865 onwards. You see pictures inside the Craton photographs of him in his paintings. So the Indonesian elite, as it constituted by the Priyayi, the Javanese aristocrats, in largely, certainly subordinate to and largely in the service of the Dutch, appreciated these paintings. Uh, but uh, that's probably that's a different kind of audience, but not perhaps the mass audience of the salon that he was in. I mean, the, the world wouldn't get into a salon if it wasn't of interest to the to the view. You know, I mentioned Amsterdam Salon in 1834, for God's sake. Nobody mentions it. And as indeed nobody mentioned the Chinese portrait sculpture in the Royal Academy in 1771 until a colleague in Hong Kong pointed out this famous picture of Zofany of the academicians includes the Chinese artists at the back. And we found out who, uh, my friend found out who it was. So, you know, this is such like ignorance. You know, we didn't notice, we didn't see what was going on. Hello. Thank you for your lecture, John. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more, and perhaps it's relevant to the previous question about audiences, on the idea of isolation versus community, because you mentioned how differently these two figures mixed with European cosmopolitan society. That's my, yeah, my, my deduction, it's not, yeah. Right, but I wonder perhaps um, we could discuss the fact that Luna was moving into an expatriate Filipino community in a lot of ways. He had peers who were journalists, activists, writers. Whereas Radan Saleh, perhaps, and you know, you can expand on this, I, I don't know, but it seems that he had almost no Javanese peers yeah, alongside him in Europe at that time. So I think that has perhaps some impact on how their work was received in Europe among their own communities or at home. Perhaps you could say more about this issue. It seems that, I mean, I haven't studied the Illustrado opposition to Spanish rule in the Philippines. I mean, I read a few secondary books which are very interesting in indicating how this operated. But there would have been a large community of Filipinos interested in political reform in Madrid by the time he arrived there, as far as I can see. Someone else will correct me, I suppose. So... Um, but it seems to me that the, dif the difference is that um, Luna was going to be a professional artist who was going to be identified as a professional artist. It's simply that his subjectivity and the position from which he came and the kind of subjects that he introduced gradually moved him back, both socially to represent the uh, 
the working classes of Paris, where actually Italian immigrants largely feel as far as we get deduced. Um, and um, Filipinos other than the, um, the Strados, the landowners, who, or at least those in, in, the, in cahoots with the friars. Um, but the whole situation was changing in the mid-1890s anyway in the Philippines. And it's not clear exactly where he was located in any of those movements, so apart from the fact he was a diplomat serving the regime, the Philippines Republic. Um, Luna is different because it seems from what survives that he's moving in a Filipino society. And you're saying, you're thinking that it's because Saleh did not have such a society, in Holland in 1829 onwards, that his relationship with the artwork or to his expression was different. I don't know. It's, he seems to have gone through different stages. For, for, for example, even though he did portraits, he didn't master proper academy drawing. Even though he did um, uh, you know, map, map, manneristic pictures of the landscapes in the Dutch manner as received in the middle of the 19th century. He didn't go away and study them in any great detail. Um, he doesn't seem to have done a lot of figure drawing, new drawing. He didn't go to uh, the uh, art academy. In fact, it's thought, in some speculations by, by, by Werner, among others, that they, didn't, they wanted him to become a kind of art technician who would do, um, you know, standard drawings for scientific surveys and so forth, and also perhaps, because he trained, he also, in, in, in The Hague, he also trained as a gilder, a gilder of frame, picture frames for a while. So he thought he would perhaps be able to maintain pictures for them in, in Java when he went back. But he seems to be more clever than that, and gone around them and worked out how to get more money out of the government himself. So a visit which was originally supposed to be three years, training in a few artist studios and going back, became a visit of um, nearly 20 years. And all of it paid for by the Dutch crown. He got a salary from the Dutch crown all the way through. So um, Saleh may, may have known what he was doing. I think he's, he knew what he was doing. I don't think Luna always did know what he was doing, but then Luna was dealing with a much bigger set of problems, which is how to establish a nation, an independent state, at the height of colonial you know, power of Western powers in, in Asia. Didn't work. I mean, there's, this, this, there's a social field through which all these individual intentions are projected, and sometimes the social field, given by the historical conditions in the late 90s, would allow it. That's what I feel. Hi. Um, could you elaborate more on uh, Verne's influence on uh, Radhan Saleh? Um, was it quite remotely influenced, or rather uh, initially? I don't know how early they met. And then subsequently, I guess there was an influence on, on, on his style and his subject matter as well. So, yeah, I'd like to know about that a lot. Well, Besides the horse. I would too, um, uh, to put it bluntly. But, um, well... There's no, as far as I remember from what Werner wrote, there's no record of him having met Werner in Dresden or Maxim. But Werner was there because there's the Thor's 
um, the picture of Thorwald's important sculpture, and we know that um, Ryland Salah did a picture of Thorwald's, and doesn't has not survived. So, um, so I would suspect what we're dealing with is a very high-level provincial art academy called Dresden with annual exhibitions, Kunstakademie in Dresden. I forget what the actual German title is, um, and uh, these annual exhibitions at which works either by Vernet or in the manner of Vernet were being displayed. And I would suspect, I haven't talked to Werner about this, that that's where he picked it up. But we do know that when Salah went to Paris, by 1845 he'd been to the studios of Werner. And it was suspected that he'd gone to Africa when Werner went to sketch one of the French military campaigns in Algeria. But it's been proved that he couldn't have gone because he was in France at the time, or Germany at the time. So that may be why there, aren't, there isn't a historical picture uh, of the Vernet, the large, very, very large, enormous historical battle scenes, which Vernet did for the Palais de Versailles in, in Salé's oeuvre. But certain that Vernet visited Salé, uh, the, the Salé visited Vernet's studio, and that before one of the Salon exhibitions, I forget which one, Vernet, with some other people from the Salon jury, actually came to Salé's studio. So there's that kind of level of familiarity. Um, you'd have to really examine all the other kinds of paintings of that subject matter, which is given to Vernet as a kind of originator in the 19th century. But it isn't actually. It's a, actually a kind of subject matter which circulates through Salons of which Vernet was a famous and in Baudelaire's term, despicable example. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, there were a lot of other people who did those kind of pictures. What have been described as Orientalist pictures by later, later, later art historians, but they're not simply that. They're a kind of rhapsodizing of animal violence as an allegory for human expression, passion. And also, it's the contemporary with the Romantic movement in France. The, and then the whole problem of French, French art politics and prominent art styles in, in the, the first half of the 19th century is what is going to overthrow neoclassicism? Because neoclassicism has been reinforced by the, the drawing codes and the painting codes of the art schools. It's been reinforced by the, the jury system in the salons, the very people who sit on the damn jury. So they, all of that's going to change between, if I remember rightly, American art historian, 1830s through 1850. It changed. You know, different art was allowed in, different kinds of artists became sat on the salon. The, the um, salon split, and so on and so forth. That all happens in the 19th century. This is independent of the rise of Impressionism and other kinds of influence of photography on art expression and so forth. You, know, you think about those animalier pictures, those you know battles between animals or people on horseback fighting animals or hunting animals. They're all very concentrated in time. They're all in a very narrow time band. Now, was that pr the product of Vanny's influence or was that the product of the, the, the demand of a certain kind of patronage class who like those kind of pictures? I would think it's the latter not Vernet as such. Vernet may have provided the model, but there were lots of other models available, particularly, of course, in Romantic paint, particularly, of course, in Delacroix uh, in the 1830s and 40s. So 
yes, maybe Vernet had a uh, particular importance, but it would be simply as an exemplar of a tendency that was found in salons which aristocrats wanted. That's the way I see it. And, there were, well, and, and of course, do remember that Salé did not go to art school. He studied with two painters in their studio. And there were art schools being established all over Europe in the first half of the 19th century. So it's a kind of self-taught, uncodified learning through the exhibition proceedings. Sorry. I'm sort of wanting to follow on from what the previous question was. Not sure whether I'm going to be able to formulate it correctly, but all these Animalier paintings and then people like Barry, you know, who makes the sculptures of the lions. And then Lady Canning mentioned Lancia. Yeah, Lancia, yeah. And there are all these really dull paintings, aren't there, of um, sheep and cattle that come out of Scotland. Dogs. Dogs, dogs scup, but also lot, sort of looming big cows standing together on very sort of sodden hillsides. So there's this enormous enthusiasm for images of the animal world at a particular stage. And he did do a very close copy of Valencia, Saleh, in Preston. Okay. So, I mean, people still like cat pictures, but these people liked tiger pictures and they like cows. And, but what strikes me, and I'm thinking about this gentleman's question, is... You say some things about some of the Animalia pictures of Raden Saleh as potentially allegorical. And I think in lots of those pictures, canonically, we've got a big feline and a horse. One is typically savage, the other is typically refined, civilized, or trained. The stallion is Java and the lion is the Dutch. Well, yes, so, but also the horse is associated with human. Life or it's, it's a culture co training, codependent, and the lion or the tiger, even worse, with something you know, fabulously ungovernable. Mm. Here's my question Did anybody notice that some of these pictures were done by somebody who was other and came from another part of the world? Is there anything anywhere? No one ever mentioned it. What a pity. I haven't seen it anywhere in the literature. I'm very sorry the question is the reply is so simple. Because, I would love to be able to read that. No. Because, I mean, Vernet presumably is like a dandy in a Paris so, studio. Yeah. But Rad is something completely more exotic. Can I suggest that, um, um, well, first of all, this is, the Ver this is the, one of the close to Lancia type pictures here. The painting on the right and the painted, uh, it's very much smaller paint, enamel on porcelain on the left. Much more beautiful colours. Um, What's I going to do? Um, so there's no evidence anywhere of, 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 of his taking up that subject and knowing that there's a piquancy to his doing it. Um, I'm one of those unfortunate people who can remember very simple songs. A song by Byron I can remember. And um, then you go and look at Byron. This is written about a these paintings are uh, essentially, the Vernet picture on the left is an illustration of a very long poem by Byron, which is very popular in the early 19th century. So, alongside the pictorial language is a new literary language um, of the direct expression of raw emotion and violence and physicality. 
which was allowed or brought to the fore by Byron and Shelley and a number of other people. Um, now, um, it seems to me that you'd have to re-enter this world, this, this literary, but it's not simply a literary world, it's an imaginary. It's a transformation of European narrative poetry into a kind of modern, modern expression. Very violent things happen in these poems. In these people get raped, killed, chopped up, and all sorts of things. All in a wonderfully elaborate, ele elegant prose, um, elegant poetic stanzas. So um, I suspect that's why this literature occurs from time to time, like in Spoliario. Is it that people are imagining things through literature, and then suddenly they see, they realize how to visualize it or the visualization takes on a particular power for a particular audience. And that's what I think was going on. But, uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was wondering if uh, there is a pattern uh, in, the, uh, in the work of uh, Luna, because uh, judging from the uh, slides that you projected, uh, the general feel, as well as even the technique of uh, his historical pictures, are really entirely different. Uh, for example, from that uh, portrait of uh, of the Filipina that uh, that you projected, uh, the one whose arms were raised, you know, completely informal, even in the technique, and of course the painting uh, of the uh, of the people in the lodge at the opera, again, yeah. were completely different. So. Uh, even in that last uh, picture, that one, the two are really, you know, really quite quite different in uh, in feel, in technique, even in composition. And uh, so I was wondering uh, if uh, it would. Be, and then I don't notice any kind of uh, progression in his uh, in his work from uh, one stage to another, uh, or even uh, any kind of. Uh, uh, similarity or comparability, unlike, for example, the works of uh, other artists uh, of the uh, period. I mean, one recognized a uh, Van Gogh, uh, regardless of the year in which uh, it was painted, which, is, uh, which seems to me is quite different from the work of Luna. And uh, so uh, I was wondering what you thought of that. I don't quite understand uh, what I'm supposed to say. Well, uh, basically what I was thinking is that uh, one normally expects uh, the work of an artist to progress uh, in a kind of, uh, not necessarily in a straight line, but at least one, recognize, uh, one, recogni one can recognize changes from uh, one period to another, from uh, one, uh, one year to another. Now, in the case of Luna, he uh, started in the Philippines, uh, he went to Madrid, he went to Rome, uh, he returned to the Philippines, and uh, his work, uh, for example, uh, in the Philippines uh, seemed not to have been affected too much by his uh, stay in Europe. And uh, so that kind of puzzles me uh, a little. I don't agree with you about Luna. This is the, the, paint, the paintings around uh, 1991, 1992. They are a different kind of and you'll see that in the exhibition, particularly the painting on the right, which is a typical painting. There are many other paintings of this kind in, unfortunately, not in the Philippines, so 
the Balaguer Museum here in Barcelona. So, uh, I mean, I could see why you might think that, but I'll just say, with regard to this kind of painting, there's a definite shift, both in subject matter, composition, use of oil paint, and so forth. Definitely a different difference. Uh, uh, and this, this, as we know with lots of artists, changes in style often accompany changes in subject matter. If you look somewhere else, you might see it in a different way. And the same with the pictures of the Demi-Monde in Paris, uh, roughly the same period. Uh, this, this, he seems to be starting to look in a different way. And that, uh, it's, these are the works which are in the French uh, salon catalogues, by the way, the are upstairs. So I'm not sure I agree with you. And of course, saying that you can recognize Van Gogh anywhere means you're recognizing paintings done within 18 months. Because nobody recognized early Van Gogh against late Van Gogh. She's a much longer period, the uh, period of the Hague I, I agree with that. But this one, 1891, he returned to the Philippines after 1891, and his work in the Philippines was entirely different from this. I'm reluctant to periodize in that one. That's all I can say. I, I can see that you might want to do that, and I can see why you think that. Um, I hope you can do it now. Um, and did he return to I can't remember. Uh, briefly, and then he was arrested in 1894. Is that right? Someone tell me. Was it, when was he arrested and sent back as a prisoner? Mm -hmm. 1894, yeah, that's right. So I did remember it right. You know, when you get a bell, you see too many pictures, you forget that. It's very easy. Uh, so, um, yeah. Um, and then he did some very bad pictures. And then there's a, pic there's a picture upstairs of the general, uh, the governor general of the Philippines, which is, uh, which is what? Blanco, yeah. When is that? I forget. Clarissa? 1994 to 96. So it's a later picture. So, uh, and then we have all those little paintings of landscapes done in, in Philippines and then in Japan in the second half of the 1990s which looked like sketch paintings he compensated for while he was busy negotiating arms. We think, but no one's ever been able to prove that properly. You know? But that looks like he was certainly up to something in Japan. He was there long enough. So he wasn't doing it to begin and out. Um, I, actually, you know, very honest, I don't know what you think, Clarissa, to this question. Is there a real stylistic change in the Philippines in the late second half of the 1890s? I don't think there's enough work to judge. Subject matter change, yeah. And there, was, there were little figures in the landscape, sort of anticipations of uh, a more solo sort of somewhere, if they'd been closer to the figures and they'd be more brilliantly lit. Well, I didn't really see it that way. But, I mean, it's a sometimes you. You have a feeling about an artist, but you don't have enough material to deal with. That's just a problem. You've been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. And to learn more about our programs at the gallery, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Kalisha Chia Kasim, and Tamaris Goh. 
and the music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening.